for tuning in to the 402nd episode of Barbershop Sports Talk with me, your host, Daryl D. Lane. As always, wherever you are, however you may be listening, I want to thank you for making me and this show part of your day, whether it be via Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iRadio, SoundCloud, Pandora, whichever podcasting app or platform you may be listening to me via. Being recorded from Buffalo, New York, per usual. Going to have a great podcast for you guys today. Going to have Andrew Greif on. He covers the L.A. Clippers for the L.A. Times, the big times right over there, right? Uh, one of the more, most credentialed newspapers in America, the L.A. Times. So I'm really excited to have Andrew on. We're going to talk some Clippers basketball. We get into Kawhi Leonard, his injury history, the Clippers collapsing in the bubble a few years ago, just their season to date, how they've kind of exceeded expectations with Tyron Lue, some funny moments of him uh, over his tenure covering the Clippers uh, and covering that team. The Lou Williams... Uh, strip club story to going to get the wings we talk about that paul george dealing with uh anxiety he had a couple conversations with paul george so really fun great conversation you guys will love it now before we get to that conversation i'm gonna give my shameless plug as always first time listener thank you but subscribe and follow right now also share this podcast with your friends and family whether it be via reddit threads facebook groups etc etc check on the description below specifically if you use spotify you can click on the timestamps and we'll send you to whichever part of the podcast you would most like to listen to folks it's for your convenience follow me on twitter at nitrate underscore lane also Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just type in Daryl Lane. You will find that I post three to five minute clips of this podcast right here. As well as my syndicate show outside the shop. And lastly, if you have Apple or iTunes, give me five stars and a great review. For some odd reason, right? If you don't like the pod, then don't say anything. Because you know what your mama told you. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. And before we get to my conversation with Andrew, I'm going to give... One of my monologues that my good friend Kenny Sim loves so much. So, Russell Wilson is traded to the Denver Broncos, but I think Seattle actually won this trade. When we look back at this, here's the trade breakdown. So, the Broncos got Russell Wilson in a fourth-round pick. The Seahawks got quarterback Drew Locke, defensive lineman Shelby Harris, tight end Noah Fant, uh, a first-round pick, another first-round pick, a second-round pick, another second-round pick, and a fifth-round pick. So they got five draft picks, three players. Folks, this is simple. Seattle won this trade, and it's not even close. And I know people might say, oh, my God, but they got the quarterback. They got the best player in the deal. Well, that's true. But let's make this, you know... Let's look into this, right? Because the quarterback is deified, which I don't agree with. I think we make the quarterback out to be much too much uh, than it is. Uh, the quarterback is not... It's important, but it's not as important as we think it is, right? Uh, point in case, Aaron Rodgers was the MVP in the league, and he lost in a divisional round of the NFL playoffs to Jimmy Garoppolo, whose team drafted a quarterback to replace him. Tom Brady, the GOAT. Lost to Matthew Stafford, a guy who had never won a playoff game before this year. So it's not like, oh, you always have the best quarterback you win, right? That's not always how it works. QB this, QB that, you need a franchise all-pro QB. No, you don't. That's a myth. When the Patriots won in 2001, Tom Brady was a mediocre QB. Sorry, folks, I hate to tell you, that's what Tom Brady was. Nick Foles, when he won the Super Bowl with the Philadelphia Eagles, he was not a star QB. 
when the Minnesota Vikings with Case Keenum made it to the NFC Championship game, NFC Championship game, not a star QB. Mark Chantez, back-to-back AFC Championship games with the Jets, not a star QB. You don't need the best QB to win. Like I said, 49ers went to Lambeau with Jimmy Garoppolo and beat Aaron Rodgers. The Rams beat the GOAT, Tom Brady. The Bengals went on the road to Arrowhead Stadium with Patrick Mahomes and beat him. In terms of Russell Wilson, does he matter that much to winning? Since he, since the Legion of Boom has left Seattle, and Seattle went to back-to-back Super Bowls, winning one of those where they dominated the Denver Broncos, what has Russell Wilson done? He hasn't won hardly anything. In fact, Jared Goff, Jimmy Garoppolo, and Nick Foles all have been to more Super Bowls and won more Super Bowls than Russell Wilson in that time span. Russell Wilson is this. He's 32 years old. He's a depreciating asset. He's a car. Every time you use a car, you can use a Ferrari, no matter how cool, no matter how sexy, no matter how much the girls like the Ferrari, it's a depreciating asset. Every time you use it, it lessens in value, no matter how freaking cool it looks in the moment. Russell Wilson's getting worse. His game is based off of quickness, agility, moving in the pocket, his arm. All those things are deteriorating. His peak was about two years ago. Apex Russell Wilson was two years ago when Lamar Jackson won MVP and Russell Wilson got second in the MVP voting. That was Apex Russell Wilson. I don't think we'll ever see Russell Wilson be that good again. And he doesn't want to be in Seattle. We need volunteers, not hostages. When you have to beg a girl to stay with you, you should probably let her go. When you have to beg somebody to come to work, you should probably just fire them, right? Have people that want to be with you around you. Have people that want to be there. This creates a better healthy environment, more of a healthy environment, right? And to my rankings, as I graded all the QBs this year, Russell Wilson was the 11th best QB in the NFL this year. Now, it fluctuates. Maybe next year will be a top five QB. I don't think he will. I think he's closer to being seventh, eighth, ninth. Probably not as low as I had him at 11th. But even with that, the case, even with that being the case, it's not worth everything. It's not worth everything they gave up. The multiple first round picks, the multiple second round picks, the fifth round pick, Noah Fan, and all these other guys. It's not. People get caught up in the big names too much. Russell Wilson, star QB. The Broncos must have won the trade. But when in reality, they're in a division with the Kansas City Chiefs, the LA Chargers, and the Las Vegas Raiders, who have Josh McDaniel, John Carroll, Lum, by the way. And when we look at this, Russell Wilson's the third best QB in the division. And the Broncos are going to have what? The second or third best coach in the division? Fourth best? We don't know. But Justin Herbert's better than Russell Wilson. That's a fact. And there's nothing you can do to say that Russell Wilson is better than Justin Herbert besides saying Russell Wilson won a Super Bowl in 2013. And folks, in 2013, I was 14 years old and I was a freshman in high school. Right now, we're in the year 2022. I'm two years out of college. 2013 was a long time ago. Trump wasn't president in 2013. And Trump's been out of office for a couple of years. The world was a lot different in the year 2013. So let's not go there. The Broncos... They lost this trade. Seattle, they won this trade. Seattle needs to rebuild. Get young players. Get draft picks. Get new young blood in the building. Let's remember, fighting a quarterback, they found Russell Wilson in the third round. They won because they had a game manager in Russell Wilson. They had a really good defense, and they had a running back in Marshawn Lynch, and they closed games out that way. It wasn't that they had the star-studded QB. They put all these points up on the board, and they put pressure on you. That's not how they won. 
They won with a really good defense, a game-managing quarterback, and a run game with Marshawn Lynch going beast mode. And maybe that's how they're going to try to win again. Tell you this, the Denver Broncos will not win a Super Bowl with Russell Wilson. You heard it here first, folks. Now I want to get to this. So Coach K played his last game. Coach Mike Krzyzewski played his last game at Cameron Indoor Stadium Saturday. And I had Mr. Zach on the show for the uh, Monday podcast and we talked about it. But I just want to give you know my thoughts about this because I think it's really interesting. Right? The big difference between pro sports and college sports. Uh, pro sports, it's about the players. College sports, it's about the coaches. Here's life in pro sports. Every team is different every year. Right? So much change. So much turnaround. Players getting cut. Players getting traded. There's really... It's hard to find that attachment. Uh, and the players, for the most part, they have no loyalty but them, to them to themselves, right? No loyalty but to, to themselves. And that should be the case, right? Because you can get traded. You can get cut at any minute. They can give you the kibosh and be like, bye, see ya. Wouldn't want to be ya. Coaches get fired all the time in pro sports. There isn't much to attach yourself to besides the logo. For the most part, unless you're ever going to have long-tenured players, but you're attached to the logo, not the players, not the coaches. Which is fine, but I don't think it's as intimate as the actual human connection. Uh, then you go to college sports, which is a completely different landscape. The players stay for a set number of years, four years. The coaches stay even longer, right? Uh, less turnaround. A coach can be there for 15 years. Coach Mike Krzyzewski was at Duke for 42 years. That's longer than a lot of marriages. <laughs> that's crazy. And actually, I think the average marriage is like seven years. So that's way longer. That's like five times the average marriage in America. Uh, right? You're impacting young people's lives, young men and women. Uh, you gain a connection to the coach because they're there for so long time. For they're there for such a long time. It's innocent in nature. Uh, in college, these coaches, they become institutions beyond the institution that they actually work at. They build statues of these guys. Highest paid employees of the state most of the time. They get the police escort when they walk around. Everyone knows them in these towns, particularly if you're in a small town. These coaches become one with the school. When you think of Coach K, you think of Duke. When you think of Jim Bayon, you think of Syracuse or the zone defense. When you think of Michigan State, you think of Tom Izzo. When you think of Nick Saban, you think Alabama. When you think of Urban Meyer... You think of Ohio State. When you think of Gino Uriema, women's basketball. Think of UConn. You think of Pat Summit, God rest her soul. You think of Tennessee. Like, these coaches, they become synonymous. They become one with the university. And it leads to this power, right? This kind of mythical feeling of how these coaches, they become more than men. They become more than women. They become deified. And it's why fans become so crazy. It's why at Duke, while you can have grown men sitting out at campsites and tents for a basketball game, to see Coach K's final game, a guy that they probably never met, never talked to, or probably never will talk to, if you do that at a professional game, if the Bills game, people stand outside the tents games, you do that and you're a grown man with a wife and kids, people are going to think you're a little weird. You do that college basketball game? Oh, he's just a fan. When our kid does it, oh, they're just kids. That's the power of college, right? And sometimes it can be too much. 
uh, that deifying of a coach of a human, which I don't always agree with, right? When we're building statues of these people, I'm like, oh, we're building statues and they're just for sports? A little out there, because then it leads to things like, sadly, the Penn State sex scandal, brothels in Louisville, uh, when you deify humans and you make them more of what they are, and you kind of make them these godlike figures that can do no wrong, right? But on the positive side, like I said, there's the emotion. For Coach K's final game, there was so much emotion and passion. Grown men and women crying. Coach K crying. It overshadowed the actual game. Duke, UNC, this is the biggest rivalry in college basketball. And it was overshadowed by a coach who even after his team lost, he gave his speech. Talked to his team for five minutes and gave his speech. And I was more interested in the speech than the actual game. And I think a lot of people were too. What did he have to say? What did the athletic director have to say? What did the president of the university have to say? What did the uh, president of uh, alumni relations have to say? What was it going to be like? Who was going to talk? How was Coach K going to handle himself? It was more intriguing and interesting than the game itself, which is crazy when you really think about it. It is. But that just shows you the power of this type of stuff. I wanted to see Duke win just so I could see everybody storm the court for Coach K's final game. That's really what I want to see. That was Daryl D. Lane's rooting interest, to see them storm the court. Because it's cool. It's a lifetime experience. I can remember when I was at Amherst, and we went for homecoming. Everybody stormed the field. Like, they, these are things that you're never going to forget again. I think that's the cool part of college sports and how it's a little bit different. Uh, so I just wanted to talk about that a little bit as well. So kind of next, after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk, we're going to have Andrew on the show to talk some Clippers basketball. Cut up next out of the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. with Barbershop Sports Talk, and we have a very special guest with us, Andrew Greif. He covers the LA Clippers for the LA Times. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Yeah, thanks again for having me on. So, the first thing I have to ask you, the Clippers, they found a way to kind of maintain semi-playoff spot, kind of in the play-in right now without both Kawhi Leonard, Paul George. What's kind of been the key for that? I mean, I think that it's because they've been... Um, They've kind of taken out the persona of their coach, Ty Lu, and just been gritty and resilient. And, uh, you know, they sort of have had a no excuses mantra, at least for the last month. I mean, they've been down 35, 25, 24, and they've won. Uh, it was almost stunning when they were down by 26 uh, at one point in Sunday's loss to the Knicks, and they, they cut to 12 at entering the fourth quarter, and then they didn't pull off the full comeback. It was almost like, whoa, we haven't. We've seen this before. They always are the ones who actually pull it off. So um, I think that Lou has basically taken the tack of you're not going to replace Ron Powell, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George's production, uh, you know, with one player each. Um, so it's going to take everybody. And he's gotten, interestingly, people to buy in to that idea while also uh, understanding that, you know, he's going to try a bunch of different things so that your minutes might be cut night to night. Uh, your response to rotation might change night to night, um, but he thinks it's for the better of the team, and he's trying to get everyone else to realize that too. So it's it's a lot of trust. I can think of it, I feel like it's, it's an exercise in trust from the Clippers right now. You know, they, they trust Lou. 
he trusts in them to, to carry out what he believes. Um, and that, more than anything, um, I think that uh, that together with, they, they, I think they just really like being like they're counted out. I mean, it's so trite to say that, but they really do. I mean, like Terrence Mann actually said that. He said a lot of people wrote us off, and we love coming back and doing that. And I know that's cliche, but it does seem to be sort of at the core of what this team believes. How would you compare this thing? Because when you talk about that, you know, they don't want to be counted out, kind of that grit, kind of that grind. It, it kind of reminds me of that Clippers team with Patrick Beverly and Lou Williams that kind of snuck in as the eighth seed and they gave the Warriors a little bit of a run. Do you think there are similarities between those two teams? 100%. Yeah, it does feel like that a lot. In fact, it also feels like that way watching the Clippers and Lakers games um, of the last few weeks because it feels like that 18-19 season where it felt like the Clippers sort of, again, had that identity and the Lakers were sort of a mess. Um, and it feels like we're kind of reliving that right now uh, to a certain degree for both teams in L.A. Um, but, yeah, the, the pieces have changed, obviously, from that 2018 team for the Clippers. But there is, there is just so much, um, even the timing of the comebacks. You know, when they had that 35-point comeback in Washington, which followed a 24-pointer in Philadelphia, it was about the exact same time um, during the, the long Grammy road trip they have every year, where they're on the road for like, you know, 11 to 12 days. Um, at the same time, they had a bunch of comebacks in 2019. I mean, it was almost like three years to the month later that they were pulling off this stuff off the road, excuse me, on the road. Um, and it just kind of brought back a lot of deja vu for me. In terms of Tyron Lue, do you think he's one of the more underrated coaches in the NBA? Because if you really think about it, I feel like everybody, when he won in Cleveland, everybody was always like, well, it's LeBron, well, it's LeBron. Well, you know, turns out, right, in L.A., you know, it's not always the easiest thing to win with LeBron. Kyrie, guys who are a a little different, let's say, you know, goes to the Clippers, uh, Kawhi's out in the playoffs, and then they go on a run, and then they beat a team that maybe they shouldn't have beat in Utah. So do you think he's, and even we see what they're doing now, so you think he's one of the more underrated coaches in the NBA? I don't think so anymore because of what happened last year where they went down 0-2 and came back each time to win those first two series. The first team to ever do that in back-to-back series after falling behind 0-2. Um, you know, I think that what for what if people were still thinking that, you know, the 2016 title was, you know, almost entirely due to LeBron, I think that won over a lot of people. At least that's my sense from talking to people around the NBA um, was that, you know, there was not a lot of credit given to him, um, at least not what and Ty and some of the people maybe around him think were, and some of his friends think were commensurate credit for, for what he did to kind of help that team uh, pull off the comeback it did. But last year, when they, especially with all the limitations on the team, with the injuries and what they were still able to do, yeah, I, I think that definitely earned him. Um, I think uh, for people who didn't believe, sort of a second glance at, huh, okay, what's going on here? You know, what's the through line between these things? Oh, it's Tyloo. Um, so I think the adjustments going small against Dallas and Utah, that's where you started to really start to hear what's become probably the most popular thing about Lou this year, which is like he'll, you know, he'll try basically any strategy if he thinks it's going to win. He talked about that the night too. So I do think that um, if, if, if there were questions going into the last year's postseason, and there were a lot of questions when they went behind 0-2 to Dallas, um, you saw that change because in the general manager survey that started this last year, he was ranked among NBA GMs uh, the, the best in-game adjustment coach in the league. So when you talk about you know this team's battle cry being no excuses, which player do you think emphasizes that the most on the team? That's a good question. I, I, probably Amir Coffey. You know, Amir Coffey is a guy who's on a two-way contract. 
Um, yeah, obviously, he, this is his third year on a two-way contract, too. I don't think he was like in love with the idea of, of being back on a third yeah, two-way contract for a third year, but um, he signed literally the, the day before training camp began, um, didn't have a lot of suitors elsewhere in the league, and um, you know when Paul George went down about three weeks later in late to mid-January, that's when you started to see him really start to like get a lot of minutes and take advantage of them by playing really well. And, and you know, I think that you've seen that go in the, that he's taken on two areas that really weren't like hardcore strengths of his, and that's ball handling and three-point shooting. He's gotten so much better at both, so much more comfortable that uh, I think you could see him be like, wait a second, we don't have a backup point guard after the trade deadline because Eric Bledsoe got traded to Portland. Um, like, I, I, don't, I don't know if I want to have the ball in my hands quite to this, um, to, to this degree, but instead, he's, he's kind of taken it and literally run with it. And you've seen him start fourth quarter comebacks. you started to see him kind of help out with the early offense. So he's a guy that, again, I think going into this, he's, he's maybe accomplishing some um, some kind of responsibility that wouldn't necessarily think be like strictly within his skill set from based on his first two years. But he's been asked to do a lot, and he's done a lot with it. So Kawhi Leonard, is Kawhi going to play this season, do you think, at any point? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, it's uh, it, that's a, it's a topic shrouded mystery, right? I mean, like most Clippers you know, don't prefer to talk about injuries a whole lot, especially when it's Kawhi. It's doubly so. I think that you have to take him on his word. Um, before the season began, in training camp, I asked him sort of, "Why did you structure your your new deal with the Clippers as a three plus one? Um, you know, three years with a player option? You could have done short deals uh, and then using taking that to do an extension. There are a lot of different ways you could have gone." And he said that he wanted the security of a four-year deal uh, because he wanted to try to play this year, um, and you know, and not worry about if I if I re-injure myself, what do I do for my long term? He locked in a bunch of money for for a long term um, with the intent, he said, of trying to see if he could play. I don't, you know, they have not ruled him out, and so based on that, uh, you know, based on just again his desire, I think that I would not rule him out. I don't know if he's going to play, but I certainly wouldn't rule him out right now, uh, just because. He does seem like a guy who, you know, although in the past he's taken a long time to come back from injuries, and it would be pushing it to come back at basically nine months when the playoffs start post-surgery. Um, you know, I still look at the makeup of this Clippers team, and if, if he looks around and says, you know, hey, the West isn't maybe that strong at the top, you know, could we make an improbable run here? Um, I guess I would not put that past him, even though we all know that 2022, 2023, is really the season the team is targeting for like its its championship you know pursuit again the full strength one um, you know he, he's been on some road trips recently he's been working out obviously more and more so although I think it may be unlikely is maybe a word I guess I would not rule it out at all because that's what I more so want to ask you wait so to your best of your knowledge what is he actually doing because obviously there's a difference between him not really working out to him kind of ramping up to playing one on one to two on two three to four on four right you know how those things work so how like what is his ramp up like yeah, or just I mean, the rehab like yeah he, he doesn't work out like um, at the same time that uh, reporters are allowed in to like sort of like watch shoot rounds begin or watch practices begin stuff like that so uh, the few times we've seen him on the court like I remember in I think it was in November watching him on a court in Salt Lake City kind of dribbling up and down the court slowly but getting some shots up and you've seen him do a little bit more getting shots up um, so uh, you know, I think that he's definitely moved on to the portion from what we know of like doing explosive movements. Um, you know, doing some sort of like 
not just kind of static uh, workout kind of rehab stuff where he's moving slowly. He's, he's moving fast. He's kind of get. He's definitely has the ball in his hand. He's shooting, um, but he, he's not been cleared for practice. And I don't until he is cleared for practice. Sort of that that in between state of are, are you playing two on two? Are you playing three on three? To your point, like we don't know that yet. How much do you think him coming back has to do with if Paul George comes back? It's 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 I think it's a topic that I've been really curious about, you know, because it's like yeah, if they look at each other and say, hey, if we can get back out there together, like this could be something interesting. We can make maybe make this interesting. I think it's a lot to ask. Um, two players who have been out for a very long time, you know, obviously we're talking about almost eight months in the case of Kawhi. Uh, well, really nine months since he injured himself and since December 22nd. And really, it was even earlier than that, that his, that his elbow started hurting uh, Paul George earlier in December. It's, it's a long time. And for it to sort of come back and sort of ask these guys, hey, welcome to playoff basketball. Now you have to go play, you know, if, you know, if everything worked out, play four rounds of intense basketball. That is so much to ask for them. So uh, I don't know that they look at each other, that it's like a, uh, a tag team deal or nothing or just one off but uh, I think that you know they have a really good relationship so I, I wouldn't be surprised if they talked about that obviously um, but I, I don't know to the extent of the kind of conversations of um, if you do then I will when do you think we'll know if Kawhi's planning to come back like when do you think it'll be like okay for sure he's not coming back or do you think it's always going to be open like they could be in a first round series and it could be game four it's like Kawhi's coming back be like that latter option yeah I, I really do um because you know there might be some some bits and pieces where you know we see him practicing or taking a shoot around maybe that's the first instance but i don't think that they're going to come out and just like talk about you know hey by the way this is uh, you know he's back now he's playing in a week like we're targeting two weeks from now i don't think like the stuff that we hear players talk about i'm targeting this date i don't think you're ever going to hear that from Kawhi or the clippers necessarily they, they keep things very close to the vest um, the joke is that one day he's just going to show up on the injury report as questionable. You know, <laughs> I can see, I can very much see that happening. Um, so, I I think there's probably a sense of mystery that is to the Clippers' incentive. You know, especially if if, if it would be a playoff return. Um, I think the, the sense of mystery would be helpful for them, advantageous. So, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily see them coming out and making any sort of announcement. How would you characterize the Kawhi Leonard era in LA? I mean, it's, I think, him choosing not only to sign there the first time, but sign there a second time last summer, um, I think legitimizes the organization, sort of what they had been building in the two or three years before um, he's initially signed them in free agency. You know, they basically overturned their front office. Um, they, you know, the, the ownership of Steve Ballmer had, had said to Lawrence Frank in about 2017, you know, hey, you know, go out and study the best front offices, how they're run, and let's mimic that. And let's incorporate that into how we run our, our front office and our, and our team. And they've done that. And they, they put a lot of stock in sort of like that corporate, quote-unquote, culture of how they run things and how they want to be all-player-oriented. Uh, the front office always takes pains to say, like, oh, no, no, we're not the front office. We're the back office. I mean, that's, that's sort of the way they operate, right? So to have him re-sign last summer, um, I think was a... You could read that as a validation for the people who do work with the team as, okay, like everything we've been talking about for several years um, 
it's been attractive enough for him not to only come here, but to come here and say, you know what, I really enjoyed those last couple of years. Let's do it again. So that's why uh, for a team with no history, at least no history that's really all that good. You know, they had not made a conference finals until last year. It's taken five decades. Um, getting a player of his caliber in his prime to sign up and then stick around um, has been, I think, a legitimizing thing that at least I think their hopes are that, you know, this is not a, a one or two superstar thing for them. That down the road, that the, the success that Kawhi that they hope can lead to them now sort of beget the next wave of future stars who, who look at the Clippers differently than perhaps all-stars or players of that caliber did in the previous decades when they were obviously um, a punchline of a franchise. When Kawhi got hurt against Utah, did you think that, you know, going back to almost a calendar year, nine months, like you said, that we'd be where we are now? Um, I, I sort of, I didn't rule it out because in my mind, knowing that, again, he's sort of, he's not an athlete who's in his mid-30s. He's not one in his mid-20s either, but he's in the pot. And um, he's a guy who, although he had taken a long time to come back from his injury in San Antonio, when there had been seemingly like a split in philosophy between the team and Kawhi and his camp, um, I sort of just didn't see that happening with the Clippers because I just feel like, again, the Clippers have bent over backward for sort of... um, what Kawhi wants to do, how to accommodate him, and I, I just, I just felt like whatever timeline he decided, whatever process he wanted, they would go along with um, and support. So I felt like he would probably enter this whole like rehab process with um, in a feeling of control, and so that you know, it, and that based on his, along with his, you know, just like physical conditioning, um, I thought that there would be a chance, you know, like. I looked at Jamal Murray. It's very an interesting test case. You know, that was April, and he's going to roll out here. It sounds like at some point this month, according to some you know reports coming out of Denver, that we could be seeing Jamal Murray before March ends. Well, that's eleven months. You know, close to a year. So, it is if Kawhi comes back earlier than that, that that's obviously going to be the early end of things. Um, but you talk to most orthopedic surgeons, and they'll tell you, you know, typically nine to twelve months is the time when you see athletes, especially elite athletes, um, returning to competition. When the injury first happened, when did when when did it become clear that it was an ACL? Because I think I remember at first when it happened, there was a little bit of gray area, like what's going on, and then it became out later that it was an ACL, right? Right. It was. He said he was fine that that night after the game because he he played extremely well. He'd had um, one of the highlights of the entire postseason for him or for the Clippers was a dunk over Derek Favors in uh, the first half of that game of Game Four. Um, and obviously uh, operating at peak you know, physical fitness at that point. Um, and so when he got hurt, comes out, and you know, about, I think about four minutes left in the fourth quarter, and it was concerning, uh, but he said, I'm fine, I'm fine, which, I mean, it's, I don't think anyone like read that that was the final word into it, you know, because he, he doesn't like to talk about his health, right? So um, I wasn't sure if, you know, if that was truly how he felt or not. But, um, you know, it was the next day that it came out. I believe ESPN was first to report that uh, it was feared to be an ACL, and of course it was. And you know, they they talk about it being a partial ACL tear. Um, you talk to most orthopedic surgeons, and they tell you there's really no thing such thing as a partial ACL tear. You know, it's either uh, healthy enough that you don't require surgery, or it's torn enough where you do. And and 
um, partials are pretty rare, and if they exist at all, and in the eyes of at least some surgeons you talk to. So this has been a full deal. You know, it's like if they on the injury report they list it as reconstruction surgery. So this is not a small surgery at all. Um, so I don't, again I go back to like if he does come back this year, like what are our expectations? What should they be? What will they be? And I think it really has to be tempered because as good of a player as he is, this is such a strong injury, and, and it takes more time than I think um, you know fans maybe are, are expecting. How shocked were you with what happened after Kawhi got hurt against the Jazz? <laughs> yeah, the Terrence Mann game was shocking. <laughs> that game six, because you know they had trailed by so many twenty plus, I believe twenty five in that third quarter against the Jazz. Um, yeah, that was stunning. That was absolutely stunning. I was actually that day. Uh, it was, <laughs> as it turned out, I was in uh, a wedding in San Francisco. Okay. Uh, one of my best friends was there, so I wasn't even able to go to the game. But I knew, one way or another, the, the series was continuing. If they lost that game, they'd go back to Game Seven in Salt Lake City. If they won, they'd be playing Game One in Phoenix. Um, so I'm like looking at updates on my phone and being like, "Okay, well, I guess I'll have to book my flight to Salt Lake City, you know, for Game Seven. And then I look up like 10 minutes later and Terrence Mann has like 35 points and, you know, they've had, they've come all the way back and climbed the mountain and they're just like routing the jazz. It's a, it's a win, like going away easily. I was stunned. I was just like texting my colleagues at the game. Like, can you explain what's to happen? Because <laughs> the box score is truly like reflecting what just happened. So that was um, obviously unexpected. And I think really, being there for Game 5 in Salt Lake City when Paul George had, I want to say, uh, the, name, the numbers escaped me precisely, but it was like, you know, at least 30 points and at least 15 rebounds uh, in probably the most important postseason game uh, of, for him in like the last three or four years, you know, because he's been, he's the guy who Dane hit the shot over to win that series, right? He was the guy who hit the side of the backboard with the Clippers against the Nuggets, and he just never lived those moments down. And... To, to have him, like, not have Kawhi next to him and go out there and really take control of that series in Game 5 on the road. Um, I mean, I, I still remember him walking out of the arena, off the floor, and a bunch of his buddies were um, kind of, like, in the corner of the arena near him, and he was just, like, waving his hand up to him. Like, you could, you could almost feel, and he told me later, that yeah, a weight sort of lifted uh, definitely in that game. Yeah, you could tell because there was a lot of Paul George criticism, and I think that helped his approval rating over most guys in the NBA. Like, I think that specific series helped Paul George's approval rating, how he's kind of perceived because, right, to go back to the bubble, I mean, that wasn't a good look, and there were a lot of jokes, maybe justifiably so, but I'm sure he didn't like that, and then you come back and kind of redeem yourself in a playoff series where the best guy's out and you kind of take over. And that was something I talked about with him before the season began, which was, um, coming out of that series and having done that, like, does he does he feel like again the proverbial weight's been lifted from him? And he said absolutely. And I sort of asked him like if he has a different relationship to criticism after that, um, having gone through the bubble and then having responded uh, the way he did against Utah. Um, you know, did, does he still listen to criticism? Because he was very open in the bubble about how. He'd been reading all the messages. <laughs> you know, he'd been reading all the jokes about everything that was going on in the bubble. Um, and he said that, yes, he, he felt like he'd become much better at not letting sort of, um, you know, however, whatever you want to call it, the outside noise, um, let it get him get to him. Because
because he was saying that he was that type of person. He was pretty vulnerable, being like, I was that type of person who would allow myself to read that stuff and take it in, and it would change the way I thought about myself and change my self esteem. And um, having gone through the bubble basically steeled him. And then to answer the way he did, basically made a like, you know, like, hey, he's, he knows that he's not going to be universally um, loved by all the fans out there. And yet at the same time, uh, I think he's way more comfortable in his own skin about sort of like his place in the game at this point. How do you think he got over all that? Um, he, he basically said that he literally just like had to realize that, um, you know, social media don't love you like that. <laughs> you know, like it, it's, it's not something where you, if you are trying to find, um, to be redeemed, um, it's not the place you want to go. It's not where you find inner peace. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I think he had to, going through the bubble was sort of a very rough way to realize this, but that's where it was very clear to him that like, okay, like I, I just, for my own sanity, you know, as, as well mental health, like I can't let this stuff get to me that much. I can't, I just can't look at it. So I think he's a little more selective about kind of just his social media usage um, and, and sort of like taking things and, and feeling like he can kind of float above it. You know, like even, even if he's not above criticism, and, and that's something that he kind of made clear too. Like he, he understands criticism um, of his game, but uh, it's sort of like, do you let that uh, sit with you for long periods of time, or do you sort of like take it in and just kind of move on, keep floating? I think he's a lot better at, that, at the latter. So, what do you think went into that collapse in the bubble? I mean, they they just they clearly were not ready for the moment. I mean, they uh, you know. I think that there was there's talk later on about sort of like you know is there like were there internal problems um, you know I don't think that that was like the end all be all I think that if they'd won I think it would have sort of gone by the wayside um, as a lot of coaches have talked about like you know there are a lot of teams that don't like love each other but they just find a way to work together um, and I think that in a lot of ways that team did not have much time to work together you know Montrez Harrell was out of the bubble for a long time about three weeks um, you know, kind of, I think his grandmother had passed away. And so he was out, uh, outside the bubble and, you know, he comes back. He's not the same player at all. Patrick Beverly, um, had a friend murdered, uh, while he was in, while in the bubble, he left briefly to go out and sort of deal with that. He came back. Lou Williams was gone. Obviously famously, <laughs> uh, it was, you know, pictured out, uh, Magic City place shouldn't have been according to the, you know, public safety protocols that became a thing. Um, so, I, in, in a lot of ways, like the team was playing really well at this time, literally two years ago, uh, or I should say three years ago, um, going into March, right before the shutdown happened, they had just gotten healthy and they were like, they had taken apart the Warriors on the road and it was like, okay, this is what this team could look like at full strength. And then they never really got to play together ever again. You know, like someone was always missing or someone was always off. And so I, I don't disagree that, um, you know, Maybe the parts and pieces didn't fit internally, like, you know, uh, perfectly. But I really think that just they did not have time to really play together, to really feel out those differences about, okay, like, I know how to play with you because I can kind of read you. I really think that they just, um, their inability to get time together uh, was what really killed them. How big of a gaffe do you think the wings thing was for Lou? The what? The wings. The wings. Like, just for oh. you, just in terms of covering sports, like, have you ever had where somebody's like, I was supposed to be here, and, like, they were in some place just where they definitely weren't, weren't supposed to be? I mean, that was, I'm sure, well, I did cover a bowl game one time, and, and 
Alamo Bowl when I was the the quarterback on the team, the opposing team, uh, punched a guy at a bar and um, got arrested. So that was definitely a case of uh, that was like a few nights before the game. That that was a case of yeah, you probably should not have been there. Um, maybe definitely, but in the middle of the pandemic, yeah, it was not a good look for Lou to be there, and it got it got really. I think it was it frustrated a lot of people within the Clippers. So just sort of like, hey, like we're the team that that made these T-shirts, you know, about they they, they literally tried to um, trademark this one slogan, and I'm I'm, I'm blanking now on what it was, but it was basically like we're going to come out of the out of this pandemic stronger, you know, we're going to come out of this this time off, this uncertainty with the NBA, and stronger, um, and and of course they didn't do that, and, and so I think that was a, a real frustration that like. You know, hey, we're here. We're supposed to have this championship mindset. Um, you know, what's going on? Like, where's the focus at? So, yeah, I mean, and to lose credit, he came back and he, his first game, we talked to him about it, and he owned it. You know, he, <laughs> he basically was like, you know, understood it. Um, although he felt like maybe he had just gone with some friends to get some food, that um, he, he definitely understood why it was not a good look at all. Do you think that really put him out of favor though with the Clippers, and that's kind of why he would end up he ended up you know getting traded? Um, I don't know because by the end, before he was traded to Atlanta, he, I mean he was still really loved. I mean like he he he's one of those guys who who's kind of relatively brief stay with, with the team probably doesn't say everything about how well he was loved among the fans and even in a lot of corners of the locker room too. I mean like, um, but I don't think it helped him necessarily. But I don't I do not think it was like a a final decision. I know that coming out of that offseason, some people in the organization felt like, you know, between Montrezl Harrell, Patrick Beverly, and Lou Williams, like, a couple of them have to go, you know, but I don't know how widespread that feeling was, and, and I just do feel like Lou curried a lot of favor with the way he talked to you guys, like Terrence Mann um, and Mir Coffey, like, the young guys really go to him for, for, you know, like, life advice, just like the way Alan Iverson took Lou Williams, um, Proverbially under his wing when he was in Philadelphia, Lou did the same. And knowing, kind of looking back at his experience, knowing how much that helped him, um, kind of adjust to the NBA, um, he, he really did. Um, I think leave like a really big void last year when he left. And was like a, we weren't around the team because of the COVID protocols, but you could just tell it was like for some of the people on the team, it was just a real bummer that Lou wasn't there anymore. So it was actually kind of nice to see him get to the conference finals with Atlanta because. Playoff success um, was not some was one of the last things in his career for him to really achieve. You know, he'd done so much individually with the scoring. So I know they didn't get to the finals, but um, that was something he really wanted to do and really wanted to do with Clippers. Uh, he considered retirement. I mean, he was really upset uh, when he got traded. So to see him and the Hawks, you know, go farther than people ever expected last year in the playoffs was, I think, um, it was kind of a cool moment for me personally. At least just kind of looking at the arc of his career. You think that was more improbable than the Clippers run last year? The Hawks run or the Clippers run? Oh man, I mean, I I would I mean, yeah, I'd probably put the Hawks run up there, you know, um, because they were although you know the Clippers lost a bunch of guys, uh, they did have you know a, a Finals MVP um, for a series and a half, you know, and they had another you know All Star Paul George throughout, and they had. Marcus Morris, who had been playing in playoffs quite a bit with Boston, like they had guys who'd been there, and you know the Hawks. I felt like it was a little bit more of a grab bag of like, 
young guys who are like, this is really the first time they've truly, truly been in that fire. So, yeah, that was surprising to me. Lastly, I want to ask you this. Since you've been covering the Clippers, what's like the funniest or more interesting thing that's ever happened to you since you've been covering the team? think uh i mean there's it's been a really interesting team to cover i, I really enjoyed it there's been some funny moments um gosh i do remember one time i like i i run out of contacts uh i wear contacts and i saw so i wore my glasses for like practice and i remember patrick beverly like talking to him one-on-one off the side he just signed a deal to come back with them in free agency in 2019 and he was like hey that clark can't look looks good on you man <laughs> and I was like, I, I, I appreciate that. You know, like you, that's a that's another one that um, you know the public persona is is one thing. If if, you, if Pat Beverly has never been on your team, you probably as a fan despise him. Uh, but like the second he's on your team, uh, he becomes like your favorite player ever. Like it's been really interesting to see Timberwolves fans go through that range of emotions this year, where I'm sure a lot of them could not stand Pat in years past and now he's like people are ready to give him an arm if he needs an arm you know like can, can we adopt Pat Beverly like that's that's where things are at with Minnesota right now um and that's where things are at with the Clippers fans too so um yeah, yeah Pat and Pat was always great to me so I kind of laughed when he was like hey that Clark Kent looks uh, Clark Kent look looks good on you I was like yeah I appreciate it man but I can't wait to find my contacts <laughs> that's funny Andrew I want to thank you for coming on the show man I appreciate it hey thank you for having me on man And once again, I want to thank Andrew Greif for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And I want to thank all of you for tuning into this episode. The 402nd episode of Barbershop Sports Talk.